This is the Victory Away from the Venue podcast, showing a different side of the athletes you know and love, or maybe don't know and love, and how what happens far removed from the bright lights and the TV cameras can provide a different way to look at accomplishment. And now here are your hosts, two friends dating back to college and sports junkies their entire lives, Matt Swinney and Zach Wells. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks for joining us here in episode two. We've got uh, six-year Major League veteran pitcher Sam LeCure on the show, former Cincinnati Red for all you Reds fans. We're going to talk a little bit of uh, how in the heck are they going to do college football this season. And then we're going to talk a little bit of Reds since we got Sam on and uh, what 2020 might look like for them. I got my buddy here, Zach Wells. Zach. Episode numero dos That's for right. our Spanish-speaking friends. That's right. Let's uh, let's jump into this uh, college football season. I, again, I live in Austin. I am a uh, season ticket holder for the University of Texas football. We've got Sam Ellinger uh, slinging it around for his senior year this year and hopefully leading Texas more to the promised land uh, under Tom Herman. But the big question is, is, by the way, we have given our season tickets back for this year, but, the U, but UT is still saying that 50% inside the stadium, which is 50,000 fans approximately, it, that's still going to happen. Zach, how are we going to have college football this year? So there will be half the eyes of Texas upon them, at least in person. Yeah, they were joking. And the rest of the eyes of Texas will be either watching on TV or listening on the radio. Yeah, they were joking about, uh, I don't know if you know this, but on the stadium, it's kind of two sides of the stadium, obviously. And one side typically yells Texas and the other side yells fight. And so the joke was, so so do the Texas guys get to come or do the fight guys get to come? <laughs> First of all, I think before we get into any discussion about coronavirus and protocols and things like that, it's important to just point out for some of our audience and reinforce for others how important college football is in the economics of an athletic department and how some schools and the university as a whole. And to really get a glimpse of, of an athletic department's revenues and expenses, right? Football is the golden goose of the entire operation. It commands more television revenue than uh, other sports combined. And because of that, football funds directly or indirectly, not only scholarships for the football team, but for other endeavors throughout the university. So uh, volleyball, baseball, basketball, those kinds of sports are, are drawing upon the revenue stream that football provides. Matt, I don't think that we're going to be able to have, if we don't have any fans in Major League Baseball stadiums, I don't think we're going to be able to have fans in college football. But I do think we need to move forward with college football because for this reason. The certainty of knowing what will happen, and I'm, this is not applicable at the University of Texas because resources are not an issue in Austin, Texas, but the certainty of what not having a football season in 2020 will mean for non-Power 5 colleges and universities from a profit and loss standpoint, I think is more problematic than the uncertainty of following strict protocols and maybe having games without fans. Yeah, and I hear you. I'm going to play devil's advocate, not necessarily because it's what I believe. Um, honestly, I don't know what I believe in this scenario. The reality is, is with coronavirus, we don't know what we don't know. And we have seen, well, let's, let, let's see. The NBA in the bubble, that seems to be working, right? Like there were the other positive. night, zero coronavirus positive tests. Right. Zero. Zero. 
Right. So the bubble works. Uh, let's take Major League Baseball. So it actually seems like what Major League Baseball is doing, in my opinion, can work because what we've seen is now outbreaks from two teams, the Marlins and the Cardinals. Um, and there are some, while unconfirmed reports, there are certainly a lot of smoke around whether or not some members of the Marlins might have gone to a club in Atlanta after that last, I guess, summer training uh, exhibition game. Don Mattingly has talked very publicly about how Major League Baseball did not do a good job with a rain delay. And so you had the Marlins sitting in a clubhouse in a very close to one another for like eight hours or something because they couldn't obviously sit outside and there was really no protocol for that. So, you well, know, Matt, Matt, Derek Jeter said publicly, the CEO of the Marlins, that they let their guard down and didn't yeah. make good decisions. This is Derek Jeter. Yeah. And, and then, and then the Cardinals, it's starting to get out that maybe some of the Cardinals went to a casino. And so here, here's what I hope for major league baseball. I hope is that, you know, the, the, the fear of God has been struck into them by these couple of instances and hopefully players now will take this seriously and they'll go back to their hotel rooms when they're traveling and they'll, and they'll stick to protocol. And I, by the way, do not want to put a hundred percent of this blame on the players. That's completely unfair. Rob Manfred and major league baseball put them in this position to begin with. And so there's some shared blame there, but I guess my point is and how it relates back to college football is, is, you know, we have seen some success, right? And I think we've even seen success. I, I would even call Major League Baseball, um, maybe maybe I'm crazy, but I would call what they've done even a success being able to kind of limit these outbreaks to the couple of teams with, with what seem like, you know, people breaking protocol. And so if you can have college football where you trust that players, coaching staffs, you know, in any, in any traveling staff can really stay pretty isolated then you're probably in good shape as long as you can have a lot of testing. You know, my concern here though, is these are student athletes. So, and I know that's, you know, maybe a joke to call them student athletes, but how are they supposed to go to class and not have positive tests happen? Because at the University of Texas, at least, there is on-campus class. They are not doing virtual school. It is real, college students who are going out partying, coming back and going to class the next day, and football players may be in those classes. So is it that football players are restricted to only doing virtual online class? What, what, I mean, what have you heard? What do you think that looks like? I mean, potentially you have to resort to an online learning. It's going to have to be, right? Because at the end of the day, if you, to me, the only way football, college football is going to work is if they're completely confined to their team, right? And, and, and there's a trust factor there that everyone's going to, you're basically creating your own little bubble, right? And to me, you can't have them go to class, which means that once again, the NCAA, you know, it's a sham that this is really about students, you know, this is all about money and that's fine. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to be super curious what happens when a whole bunch of college players start opting out. And they're going to. We're seeing it with the Pac-12 right now, right? You know, with this kind of players union that's essentially formed. Um, you know, these are kids who do not get paid a salary to be professional athletes. That's not what they are. So I guess where I'm going with this is... is but the revenue I, they generate trickles throughout the rest of the athletic department and impacts correct. their correct. fellow student athletes in all kinds of sports. Correct. That's how important football is. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm with you that a football season needs to happen, 
my question, I guess, and, and I don't know that we know the answer to this, is how in the world does it actually happen given the current environment and if you really can't control college kids on a campus and then traveling, you know, even, even within their conference, you know, close area, you know, buses or whatever. I mean, we're talking about conference games. I mean, is, is university of Texas going to take a, a bus trip all the way to West Virginia? I mean, that's, 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 that's a trip, you know? Um, I know we're talking about conference only, but like some of these are long, long, long drives. If you're not sticking them on charter flights and, you know, what does that look like? And as a player, I guess another question I have is, is we haven't heard this yet, but if I'm a huge, um, if I'm a big prospect, if I'm a first round draft pick, I'm curious, Zach, if you were the dad of a, of a lock first round draft pick, would you want your kid to play this year? No. You'd probably tell him to sit out, right? Go, go train. Yeah, sure. Get, get ready for the combine. Here's, 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 and I'm going to be, I'm going to be an old school guy, a cranky old man for a second. What everybody has to be able to do at the end of the day is be able to look in the mirror and say, have I done the absolute best I possibly can do? Not just for me, for the guy next to me, for my offensive line, for the offensive meeting room, for the defense, for the special teams, for the coaching staff, for the traveling party. Have I done everything I can do? Yeah. Because going to clubs, if there was going to casinos, if that was going on, that's not doing your best. And if you mix good intentions, it matters to me. Because it matters to me, I'm going to take every precaution I possibly can. I'm going to be tested two, three times a week. We're going to test before we get on the charter. We're going to test after the game. There are going to be people that test positive. Sure. Now, what I don't think should happen is we panic and the sky's falling and shut the whole college football down. Now, if there's an outbreak on a team with the Marlins or with the Cardinals, that's when you decide to postpone some games or some practices and take a little break. But I think it's remarkable that the NBA has functioned as virus-free as it has in the bubble and Major League Baseball in individual stadiums while traveling on charter flights has been relatively limited in terms of outbreaks when you have what 30 teams. Yeah. And it's happened to two. Two who clearly made some bad decisions. Sure. And which go, which is, which is to be fair, that is the proof in the pudding, right? So if you actually adhere to the protocols, then we should be in good shape. We should right? be in good shape. We're, 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 and, 10, we're 10 days into this, right? Two, two weeks into this. Uh, so we've, we've got, we've, we have time to prove that really transmission is not happening on the field. And actually we proved that with the Marlins playing the Phillies, right? So, you know, the Phillies, so they were clearly on the field playing against the Marlins and several Marlins were positive at the time that they were playing. And it looks now that like the Phillies had the two positive tests, but they actually think that those were false, false positives at this point. So everyone's good, at least on the field. So it seems like we're in good shape there. My concern is, is that if that were to happen in football, 
we just don't know what we don't know, right? I mean, baseball players aren't breathing on each other nearly as often as football players are. Well, you know, think I, about the number of oh, think about the number of exchanges just on the offensive line. Yeah, right. And and that's I think where your trick is is the, on the offensive and defensive lines, right? Like in the trenches up front, you've got the yeah. offensive line and the defensive line. These yep. guys are eight inches from each other. Yeah, right. When they're face mask to face mask. Yeah, you know, when they're down in a stance. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And that's and it's going to happen. The question is. And, and I think it's, it's everybody's got to be, you know, a big boy and a big girl about it and say, what matters most to me? And am I willing to do whatever I possibly can to stay healthy? Like yeah. Matt, for our listeners, I had a kidney transplant two and a half years ago. You are a hero to me. You stepped up and, and you were willing to be my donor. I have to be able, because my brother eventually donated his kidney to me. Like he went in front of a truck for me, proverbially. And I have to be able at the end of the day to look at myself and say, did I make good decisions today? Because yeah. there's more than just me involved. Yeah, right. And I've got a gift and i got to protect it. And yeah. could I still get sick? Sure. But I can't go to a bar. I can't go to a choir concert. Not that there's choir concerts. I can't put myself in those kinds of compromising situations and high-risk areas where I run the risk of getting sick. So before we uh, jump out of this topic, how many – give me an over-under. Uh, the Big 12, we'll just use the Big 12, for example. So the Big 12 has said that they're going to play 10 games. Give me an over-under. Uh, how many games does the average Big 12 team actually play this year? Six. Six? Six. All right. I'm going to take and that's, the- and that's okay. And, and I don't begrudge any team for canceling the season or, or postponing yep. games to get, a, get an outbreak under control. I'm just saying there are going to be positive tests. Yep. But there's a difference between a positive test of a second-string corner or a starting nose tackle and an outbreak. There's a difference between a positive test and a, a virus that has taken hold of your locker room is yep. what I'm saying. All right. I'm going to take the over on six in that the average team will play more than six games, but I'm going to also say that I don't think there's a single big 12 team that actually plays all 10 games. Okay. All right. Let's move on. You want to talk uh, Cincinnati Reds before we jump into Sam LeCure? Yeah, this is really awesome. Uh, these games matter a lot. It's and really when, fun, right? Like, I, I have really enjoyed watching the beginning of baseball for that reason. I feel like um, I feel like literally like I'm looking at the standings and like and let, let's talk uh, NL Central, right? So already as of as of recording, so we're recording on uh, Thursday with this episode releasing on Monday. But as of recording, the Cubs are ten and two and already have a four and a half game cushion over the Brewers. And then the Reds are just a game back of that. So every game really does legitimately matter. Cause we're like, a, what are, what are we? A we're, six two, Matt, we're 20% of the way through 20% of the way through. Yeah. So the Reds are five and seven and they have one of the best starting staffs in major league baseball with, yeah. with Bauer and Castillo. And have you seen Sonny Gray pitch lately, Matt? He's uh, yeah. dealing now. Yeah. He's a ball player. And he was, uh, I think, and any objective person could say Sonny was really scuffling in New York with the Yankees. That's why he was almost comeback player of the year last year with the Reds. This team has, isn't hitting. Yeah. Nick Castellanos has come out and opened up the season with a 12 game hitting streak. I believe I saw a stat. If you take him out of the lineup and, and that's a big, if, I mean, he's a, he's a big part of their offensive arsenal. I think they're hitting 186. Yeah. So they're five and seven so far. And it's, it's really, really fun to see Sammy LaCure, a uh, former relief pitcher, uh, doing the, the pre and post game, you know, color analysis on TV. And I, I was lucky enough to be able to cover Sam during his, his playoff years 
with the Reds, 2010, 2012, 2013, really, really good clubs. So what, yes, what do you think, what do you think of, of baseball so far? I think it's a blast. I, I don't, you know, I'm sad. You know, I'd love to go to the ballpark. You know, yeah. I'm sure you'd love to take your son to Houston and watch the Astros. They're the closest major league team or, or go up to the new ballpark in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and watch the Rangers. I, I don't mind it. I'm bummed that I don't get to be a part of it, but I, I'd rather have it than not have it. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I feel like I've seen a lot of baseball people say uh, they should have just scrapped this season. No, no, it's not. It's not a real season anyway. Look, I think at the end of the day, am I going to view whoever wins the World Series in the same light that I will view, um, you know, the 2019 Nationals? Maybe not. But does that really matter? Not to me. I, th- I think you can. I think you can look at it like. This team accomplished something in circumstances we've never had before in our and, lifetimes. And, and, that's the, and that's the thing that I think I, I view it through of everybody's playing on the same playing field. And so to me, to go win a championship, whether it's in a shortened season or not, at the end of the day, everyone was coming from the same place. And so there is still a lot of value in winning that championship. So it, it's funny when you mentioned Sonny Gray, so he's one of those, right? So the, the, the kind of book on him was that when he went to New York and really scuffled was that maybe, and, and, and funny enough, Sam, in our interview that's about to come up, he talks about this a little bit. You know, there was some conversation around Sonny Gray and was, was the Bronx just a little bit big for him? Did he, did he not thrive in that environment where, you know, under that, under that Yankee microscope? And so I wonder if, an environment like we're in here in 2020, if Sonny Gray, no fans, you know, it's just him 60 feet, six inches away from that batter. I wonder if he will just thrive in this environment, right? Because I mean, he knows a million people are watching on TV, but I just wonder if he will kind of unlock that thing that allows him to really, I mean, he's always had great stuff. He's always been, you know, he's always been right on that cusp of being a superstar to me. And I wonder if this might be the thing that sort of propels that confidence over that edge for him. If all those stories about, you know, New York were true, that, that maybe it was a little big for him. I'll tell you what, Sonny Gray is so refreshing too, because he's got, he's got a case, he's got a case of some real polite hard ass to him and he wants to play some ball. And I'm telling you, he wants to come after you, and he wants the ball. He wants to be the ace of the staff. He wants to be that guy who, if you're on a three-game losing streak, give me the ball. If we're, if we're on a four-game winning streak, give me the ball. Streaks start with me. Slumps stop with me. I'm the guy. I want to be that guy. Yeah. And he was brought here to start either game one or game two of a playoff series, period. Yep. That's yeah. what he was brought here for. He was, not, he was not brought here and paid that kind of money as part of a rebuild. Yeah, and I will tell you, I think I think around the league, what I've noticed is that um, I think pitching has not been great. Um, you know, my Astros last night just got shellacked by the Diamondbacks. You know, Lance McCullers had a really rough. They gave up a nine-run inning. You know, after McCullers really has pitched pretty well, and um, I just wonder if you know over the season, you know, pitching will start to catch up to hitting a little bit. And I think that actually bodes well for the Reds. You know, I think because hitting has been so bad here at the beginning, if they can really start to pull it all together, I think they'll be in good shape because I think the rest of the league will come back to them a little bit. Um, And plus I think this Cubs start has been on fire. And, you know, the other upside too, is we're talking about what the, when's the last time the Reds were 
in the playoffs. The same 2014, year, right? I believe. 14? Yeah, yeah. About, about five, six years ago. Okay, so we're talking about like a six-year hiatus. And, um, you know, I think with 16 teams making the playoffs, I mean, what are you – if you if you had to put – Gosh, we're passing out ribbons left and right, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and the crazy thing about that to me is that, you know, the number eight seed now all of a sudden plays the number one seed. So you're talking in the National League, you know, the Dodgers likely, I would assume, you know, unless the Cubs keep up this torrid pace – the Dodgers probably are the best team in the national. I mean, they're definitely the best team in the national league, whether or not they play like that, we'll see. But you know, if they're the one seed, you know, here's the thing, because even if you sneak in as the eight seed and let's say the Reds can do that, which I very much think they can. I wouldn't want to play them. You're talking about a three game series in LA. And I love that. The, I love that. I, I wouldn't want to play them. Hell no. That's what I'm saying. And so you're, you're talking about, you know, Major League Baseball is trying to like sell this thing as like, well, you know, the one seed at least gets to play at home. Well, there's no fans. So the home field advantage, while maybe a little bit, is not super important, it, you know, not like it normally is. And so to me, like, if you have the Reds as an eight seed going into L.A., and especially if they're hitting well, all of a sudden, you know, Moustakas is back and he's starting to hit bombs left and right. You know, Eugenio is who he is. And, you know, all those Great guys. player. Oh, I mean, Eugenio is not going to hit 100 for the rest of the year. No, of course not. And he's going to be just fine. But it, in a three-game series where you got to have, you know, those arms, you know, Castillo, if you had to go Castillo, Bauer, Gray, three nights in a row, I mean, granted, the Dodgers can throw up a pretty legit three-two. But, I mean, on any given day in baseball, we know. You know, if 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 Kershaw doesn't have the greatest day, you know, or Walker Buehler doesn't have the greatest day, and you know Castillo's up against Walker Buehler, I mean, the Reds can win that game. That's a coin flip to me. So you know, I I like this Reds team. I think you know if you can get them into the playoffs, like they've got a chance to make some noise. Um, my only concern about them is because the NL Central and the way this is set up, they're only playing you know Central teams. And the way the NL Central is, and even the AL Central for that matter, everyone's just going to beat up on each other. And so I'm just concerned that, you know, they're all going to be so closely packed that, you know, only one team, I guess it's the top two teams out of each division go, and then there's essentially like two wild cards. So, I mean, if I'm the Reds, you're really trying to fight for at least that second place because I don't see a third team coming out of the Central. That's just You know who I'm thrilled with? If I'm a Cubs fan, I'm absolutely thrilled that that ownership group and, and Theo Epstein hired David Ross to be the manager. Yeah. I tell you what, David Ross is in my career here in Cincinnati. He played for the Reds for maybe a year and a half when I was here. He is a great man. He's a great leader. He's a great catcher. He is. And I think he only got that acclaim nationally and, and, throughout the game the people in the game knew it but I think people and fans started to really appreciate that as he went to Chicago toward the later part of his career and and won a world series there this guy it's unbelievable he yeah. has them on the top step of the dugout it looks like a college game yep and those guys are more engaged and and you might say oh that's cheesy and that's that's you know cheerleading and a lot of stuff no that matters that matters to me if I'm a fan of a team yep. and I see a team fully engaged top step and because I think if, if we're being honest if we're Cubs fans and if we're the Cubs management they made a change because they're like look we have an a, an all-star team 
on the diamond every night. We have Javier Baez. We have Chris Bryant. We have Anthony Rizzo. We also have Kyle Schwarber. Look at, you know, up and down the lineup. Wilson Contreras has a gun behind the plate of catcher. Now they're playing better. And yep. I think now they're – and this is no uh, this is no indictment of Joe Madden. Joe Madden's a brilliant baseball mind. What I'm saying is sometimes you need a new messenger. And yeah. you need a new message and a new messenger. And I think David Ross is exactly what Chicago needed. Because I'll admit, I was concerned. Can David Ross go from being John Lester's catcher to being John Lester's manager? Right. Big yeah. difference. And those are, those are his buddies. And can mm-hmm. he turn into a leader of men – uh, with the same guys that he was just teammates with. Which he has. It's, yeah. it's amazing how how locked in they are on winning. It's yeah. incredible. And, and, and I'm not a Cubs fan necessarily. I'm not I either. Enjoy them. I do enjoy them. I, I will say I do hope they get one more in this window because what I don't want – because I think that's what solidified the Red Sox, right? So the Red Sox – That's had a talented out. team. They are a talented team. Right. And, and, and that's what solidified the Red Sox to me, right? So when the Red, Red Sox finally broke the curse and now they've gotten whatever it is, three or four more since then, um, to me that's what – really solidifies them in my mind as one of the great team great modern teams you know because they can come back and do it over and over again with some different guys and with the Cubs I think we got so excited that they won the whole thing in 2016 that it was pretty easy to say well awesome they did it and so now you know they're off the hook for continuing to do it. And I would hate to see that franchise, that storied franchise playing in that amazing ballpark, you know, take this window of all those guys you just mentioned and not get another one. Because to me, that's what creates a dynasty. That's what creates, you know, longevity. That's what creates ownership groups continuing to come in and invest, you know, and, and to me, Rossi has that chance to do that, whether that's this season or in a longer, more normal season in the future, I don't know. But when they were talking about trading Chris Bryant, man, I really hope that doesn't happen. I really hope that they can figure out how to get that deal done. Maybe before the very weird short trade deadline, they pull in another arm, you know, to help them, you know, get over the hump. And, And maybe this year is the year in this kind of funkiness. But to me, like, that's what they need. Like, I would hate to just see them rest on their laurels and say, we we got the we got the bear off our back and 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 we're okay with just the one. You know, I think the great organizations are never okay with just the one. And by the way, you can make that same argument for my Astros that you know this door can't this window can't close without another one with that talent on that team. And and you know, and I hope that both Rossi and Dusty are you know are the guys to help help lead them to that. Awesome. Speaking of Dusty Baker, say what you said. What you said. Oh, I said, speaking of Dusty Baker, he is the manager now for the Houston Astros. He spent really, really good years, really good playoff years here in Cincinnati and was Sam LeCure's first big league manager. Matt, what do you say we uh, get to our conversation with Sam? It's, It's really good. It's really, really good. I hope you guys enjoy it. It is our pleasure today to welcome in a six year veteran of Major League Baseball, pitched part of six seasons for the Cincinnati Reds. First as a starter, then as a reliever. When the bullpen door opened, on came number 63, Sam LaCure. Sam, it is awesome to have you on the Victory Away from the Venue podcast, man. What's up? Zach, Matt, thanks for having me. We got our, we got our Texas connection back together. That's Texas, right. Texas, Texas, if we, Texas. If we, if we, if we, we got to have Giesenslaw on here one of these days. We get, then we got all the Texas boys. That's right. So, so Brian Giesenslaw is the co-host with Sam 
on the pre and post game shows for Fox Sports Ohio, and he's a Texas guy. I mean, high school Baylor football, boy. Baylor, yeah, all kinds of good stuff. So we got to get Jesus Slaw on there. But yeah, for our listeners, Matt Swinney and I know each other from Trinity University in San Antonio. We are college classmates. And Sam LeCure is a former pitcher at the University of Texas. So, Sam, I want to ask you, what is life like for you now doing TV? You seem like you're having a blast. And how much do you see the game differently now? And what kind of opportunities are there for someone like you to teach people the art of pitching on television? Um, I, I, I'm enjoying what I do right now a lot. Um, you know, it's, it's never – what people don't understand, I think, is, you know, kind of the transitional period going from having your dream job and, you know, it doesn't last very long, man. Like, I felt very, very fortunate to spend the amount of time that I did. I was probably on the top side of the bell-shaped curve as far as that goes, you know, for the time I spent in the major leagues. And I still was done at 33, you know. So I had kind of achieved my dream at that at that age. And then to go from that to really feeling like nothing else is ever going to kind of measure up to that you know you feel like you've hit the peak of the mountain and there's really nowhere to go but down I mean maybe that's the wrong way to look at it um you know you have your choice you have your perception of how you're going to look at different things but that's that's how I felt it's like man I tried to get into a number of different things you know I looked at you know getting a real estate license I was you know before I took the broadcasting job that I'm in now I was enrolled in a community college because I was going to be a fireman um, you know, Major League Baseball does a great job of providing, you know, its former players with a transition course to where you're talking to somebody on a weekly basis. You take one of those, you know, psychology profile tests and like what matches up with your personality, what jobs would be good for you. Broadcasting was on there. Fireman was at the very top of the list as far as matching things that I wanted. So that was something I was going to, a road that I was going to go down. Um, I ended up you know, pivoting to broadcasting because I thought that, you know, as far as being relevant in the game, um, you know, there's a, there's a short window for that. You know, five, the game's changing so fast. If I would have waited five years to get into the game, I wouldn't know what was going on. You know, with all the different analytics and things like that, I would have been totally phased out by that point. So I was like, okay, well, this is an opportunity that I think that I should jump on. I know the people that I'm working with. I know the front office. I know the team. I'm very familiar. The city of Cincinnati really treated me well while I was there here, uh, as it were, um, while I was here. So, you know, this seems like something that I, I should do. Um, and so I am really enjoying it and, and having the routine of still being around the game. Obviously, 2020 is very different from anything we've ever experienced. But even 19 and the little bit I did in 2018, um, it's a different view. You know, it's a different vantage point, I think, that I understand a little bit better. You know, some of the moves and why they make them, whether I agree with them, which is usually not. But I understand it a little bit better and have just a different lens to look at that. But, um, you know, it's a challenge. And I like to, as you've already noticed in the first five minutes of this podcast, I, I like to talk. So that's, you know, I know baseball a little bit and I know how to talk. So this seemed like a pretty good fit. Awesome. What's it like broadcasting in 2020? Um, probably not thing. like it is. Well, I will say as far as my gig that um, – me and Brian, you know, my co-host on the Reds Live, we do pregame and postgame. We're probably the least affected by this. Yeah. Um, you know, we're pretty used to being in studio. We've got our little routine to how, you know, we're setting up and doing things. Um, so I'm not, 
you know, it doesn't affect me too much to, to try to create the energy of what's going on in the stadium. That's really on our, you know, play-by-play -play analysts and color guy that are doing the actual game broadcast for them to try to create energy without a crowd there. It's, you know, the crowd, you know, pushes them along just as well as it pushes the players along. It's easy to feed off energy when it's being created by 30,000 people. You know what I mean? So, um, but it, it really hasn't changed much for me. Obviously, you know, things are under a different microscope this year as far as not just the baseball that's being played itself, but the condensed version that it's in playing, you know, 60 games, you know, the health protocol is something that we haven't had to deal with, not getting to see, you know, some of the cell. It's just, even when I look back from, um, you know, previous seasons now and I see highlights with fans in the stands, now that looks weird. And I hate that because I just, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't out there. All, I, I, I drew from the fans. I knew I needed to be in my own little element, but I certainly drew, you know, drew from them being there, as does everybody. I mean, Joey Votto made such a great quote talking about fans being the lifeblood of the game, and that's that's absolutely true. But it hasn't affected me too much. But, uh, you know, there's there's going to continue to be challenges, you know, for everybody throughout, throughout 2020. Hopefully uh, those challenges will end fairly soon as far as the coronavirus is concerned. So, Sam, your last year with the Cincinnati Reds was in 2015. You broke in in 2010, and you touched on it a little bit with fans being the lifeblood of the game, and you've got just the energy in the stadium. It's such a performance-driven business under bright lights and TV cameras. You've got uh, the adrenaline of, of coming into a game. I think you came in 63 times, 62 times, you know, in the middle of your career. That, that's a lot of appearances. How hard is it? And you touched on it earlier for that to all kind of go away and maybe not necessarily by your choice. Um, there's no more charter flights. There's no more camaraderie. There's no more spring training. The clubhouse is, is, is gone. Spring training is gone. How hard is that to make that transition, even though Major League Baseball is there to help you? Uh, I don't – I mean, I – that – this whole topic right here is, is the reason that I considered at one point myself starting a podcast um, because – and just talking to guys who are recently out of the game about the transition. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's as good as I can word it is the transition. It's, it's tough, man. Like it's, it's, it's hard for me to describe, like it's, you know, touching to me, you know, thankfully people don't have to see my face, get, you know, get choked up about it. But I mean, it, you just don't understand. You identify with being a ball player because it's what you've always done, but you don't realize I would say probably how much, you know, you try not to identify because you want to be your own person. They're like, oh, man, I'm, I'm Sam, dude. I'm not Sam the baseball player or whatever the case may be. And as much as I tried to fight that off and, and what – I mean, I was proud of it, obviously. But, you know, as much as I tried to be separate, you know, work at work, Sam at home, you know, type of thing, um, it's inevitable. So once you get done and you go from having the spring training – so I would always get down at the very beginning of February, even though it didn't start until the middle. So February 1st to October 1st, um, I knew I had my 25 or 24 buddies, my staff members looking out for me, my training staff taking care of me physically, health, you know, my not only physical health, but, you know, the maintenance for the, the trainers if I had an ailment. Um, I had those guys looking after me. The charter flights you mentioned, you get a little bit, uh, <laughs> you get a little bit apprehensive to go on the on the regular flights and the commercial flights. Then, but the routine, the routine, man, of knowing that for 180 straight days, and then you throw in spring training, that you have 
your day is, you know what you're doing that day. You're going to get up, you're going to have your breakfast. I had two alarms set for probably 11 years of pro baseball, 10 and 10, 15. I woke up at 10 and 10, 15 every single day for 11 years, you know, unless it was a day game. Get up, have breakfast, do the thing. You go to the ballpark, you know, you hang out with your loved ones or whoever, whatever you're doing. You go to the ballpark and then it begins. You know, it's not superstition. It's routine of, you know, checking all the boxes. And we talk about, the people talk about the process. That's controllables. Like you want to knock off every single thing that you're in control of. That's the maintenance of your arm. That's the health of your body. That's the, you know, whatever the case may be. So when it gets showtime, you've taken all that, all of that stuff is done. You've prepared now, you've prepared yourself the best you can to perform. And then you just go out and that's the fun part. So the routine of from two o'clock in the afternoon until 1030 at night, every single day. And then you go from doing that eight months out of the year to having 24 hours a day to fill 365. I'm getting chills about it because it's like, I mean, you can't fathom it, dude. Like it, it is, you know, when people got shut down during coronavirus, that's a glimpse of what, of what it becomes when you've been living your dream life for X amount of years. And then all of a sudden you've got to start from scratch. So um, I'm, I, for that reason, um, I feel absolutely very fortunate to have the opportunity to, to work here with the Reds around people that I care about, that care about me, um, around the game that I love that's given me and my family so much. Uh, you know, and honestly, if it weren't for the, if it weren't for getting this job, I don't, I really don't know what I would have done, man. Like I had, yeah, I had my hand in a couple other cookie jars, but you know, I just don't know. Um, it was, you know, things, things turned dark there for a little bit, man. I mean, that's just the, that people go through dark times. I'm, I'm not immune to that. So, um, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling definitely on my feet and I'm feeling healthy and I'm, I'm happy to be where I'm at. I think one of the things that, um, maybe in the jaded world of professional athletes that people forget is that professional athletes still love the game they play at the end of the day. Right. And I know a lot of players say, man, I would still play this for free and it's great that you can make a career out of it and everything else. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's not of everybody, but I mean, I think everybody can relate to if you played any team sports though. I played, I played major high school baseball in Texas. You know what that's like, yep. um, you know, and it was, it was 12 months a year, right? I mean, playing every day, just trying to not let your arm fall off. And I wasn't even a pitcher. And then, you know, I played one year into college and I remember the day I decided that I wanted to do other things. I didn't play major college, you know, so me, I could just walk away at any point. And that day that I chose to, I remember calling my mom and I just cried like a baby, right? Like, and, and the first day that I didn't have to show up to practice, so weird. And yeah. I didn't play into the big leagues and I didn't get to live that dream. And that's okay. Like, I don't have any problem with that. But I think even guys who, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think guys who play big league baseball for 15 years, still the day they have to hang it up, they, they miss that game. And they miss oh, yeah. the guys in the clubhouse. And it's not even about the money anymore. It's just – it's not having that round ball and that round bat, you know, and the, and the boys, right? So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think everybody can relate to that. And so the idea of it taking a long time to sort of process – I mean, to me, it's not even about, like, what you do next. It's about how to, like – I mean, it's a death in your life, right? I mean, it's something incredibly important. So I'm glad you're doing okay. Um, I can only imagine what that's like. 
Um, I'd like to pop us back to college baseball. So I, I grew up in, in Austin. Um, I still remember in 1983, my sister and I sitting around the TV and watching Mike Brumley catch that uh, final out for the 1983 national championship, which I'm sure as a, as a UT boy, they probably it's forced watching. Um, what's it like to pitch in the college world series? Uh, that was amazing. Um, that was, I think one of the best decisions of my life though, it ended up in struggle. Um, was going to college and getting away from home. Uh, I really learned, you know, I grew up, <laughs> if, we if we continue to touch on this subject, you'll be like, you grew up actually during that time? Um, <laughs> no, so, I, <laughs> so no, I felt like I grew up a, a big time as a man down there. My mom, uh, you know, put me, you know, did a nice job of kind of preparing me, you know, to go out there and be able to be domestic a little bit. My head coach there was Augie Garrido, if you've ever, followed college baseball to any level, you know who that is. He's either the or among the top two winningest coaches at all time, uh, head coaches of all time, won five national championships, I believe, maybe six, um, passed away a couple years ago. He was a, he was a leader of men and he was a, a mentality guy. Um, you know, you're about your best asset that you have is your mind. Um, and I, Again, if we continue to touch on this, she'll be like, you learned out of college? But anyway, I did learn some things at, at college. But uh, pitching the College World Series and, and getting to experience at a major university like that, the level, the, the brand of baseball that was being played, the, you know, the crispness of the game and the, the abilities of the guys on the field, you knew still at that point who, college super, who the college superstars were. You knew who the grinders were that were going to be, you know, the chip on the shoulder dirty down and dirty guys um you know that would play the guys who were going to go out there with the big shall i say cojones uh would maybe be the proper term for for this podcast um you know things along those lines and preparing me for you know life after college as far as you know the pro the pro ranks now obviously the, the what we're doing in, in texas playing in the college world series playing in front of you know, we're setting records up there, 25, 27, 28, 30,000 people. I mean, just absolutely. We called it Dishfalk North. Dishfalk is the uh, used to be the name. I don't know if it's still the name anymore of the, of the baseball field at the University of Texas. Uh, we refer, started referring to it as Dishfalk North. We spent so much time there. Um, so we had a good following. Uh, the College World Series, again, seeing the brand of baseball that's being played up there and having to, at that point, you know, being a 19, 18, 19, 20-year-old boy, um, to harness your emotions and to have, to visibly see the people that are, you know, pulling for you, rooting for you, rooting against you, booing, whatever the case may be. That certainly prepared me for my first start in the big leagues. I thought that I didn't feel, I felt jitters for a moment, but when I got out there, I felt like I'd been there before. You know, it's like, Man, I've I've seen this before. I've I've been in front of thirty thousand, and I remember in college, not it didn't even occur to me. You know, you're some guys are that way, and that's that's kind of the Augie Garrido, the guy, the head coach at Texas, the mentality of of being able to control your mind. And um, something that's I've been aware of more of late is guys don't think anything about going out and throwing a fifty pitch bullpen session. Guys don't think anything about going to the batting cage and hitting five hundred baseballs. Don't think anything about going out and fielding a thousand ground balls. How often do how much time do guys spend sharpening their mind? You know, actually working on like 
working on that, whatever, whatever that looks like for them, meditation, visualization, yoga. I mean, how, how much time do people spend doing that? I mean, that's your sharp, that's the sharpest tool you got in the shed. And if it's not, you, it needs to be, you yeah. know? So I think that's what pitching in the college, pitching in the college world series sharpened my best tool. So I'm curious. So Augie was well known for his small ball and yeah. you got to play, uh, I think your entire career in the national league, um, and I mean, I know from the mound, but I'm curious your perspective. So the game today, you know, is bombs and strikeouts. And, you know, even with a universal DH across the both leagues this year, um, you know, we're clearly moving in that direction. And I'm, I'm just curious, you know, coming from an Augie world where he loved to bunt guys over and he'll take a one run inning and, you know, rely on his pitching staff to keep ball games. I'm curious how you feel about kind of this, maybe not a purist uh, form of, uh, of baseball moving forward. How much time you got? <laughs> you got as much time as you need, Sam. I can't stand it. Yeah. I think it's, I think, uh, I think it's ruining baseball. I think that, you know, I'd rather, I would much rather, I think it was the, the Reds played the Cubs a couple weeks ago. And the, I think the, they scored in one run in six consecutive innings. It's that can, that just keeps momentum on your side when you're continuing to score runs and add on runs and you're creating runs by making guys use that tool that, that we're talking about that mind to go out there and create a baseball play. That's okay. You know, I got to, we got to lead off walk here. Okay. We have an opportunity now to this guy's in a slump. Let's get him out of his own head by making him bunt. And he's surprised about it, but he's got something else to focus on besides the fact that he's over for his last 20. It's like, okay, I need to lock in on this button, get it down. I can contribute this way. And it's not even going to go over against me. It's an O for O. It's a sacrifice. I've got a guy over. Okay, so they don't bunt. And then the guy gets out and the runner's still on first. Well, now how do we create this run? We need to get that guy in the scoring position. That's when you being able to steal a base becomes crucial because now even though the guy didn't get him over, he's still in scoring position with one out and you've got two chances to score you know, different things like that, a hit and run, being able to play for one run every inning, using some tact to go out there and trust in your starting pitching or your pitching staff as a whole to go out there and be able to lock it down. I mean, we, that's, that's how we won games. We kept momentum on our side by scoring often, not a ton, because it's hard, it's hard to string hits together against these guys these days. They're so nasty. It's hard to, you know, get, four run you know to string together four hits an inning because they've got all the analytics and they can they know how to get you out and they're nasty and they're throwing a hundred and so a bunt for me makes a ton of sense right now I don't know when when this particular podcast is gonna air right now they're playing the Reds are playing the Cleveland Indians and they're among probably the best pitching staff in baseball you know and the Reds are still sitting there waiting to hit a, a three-run home run every time they can't get two guys on base to hit the three-run home run right. but if they get one guy on base Let's try to get him over, and let's try to get him in. And then we've got one run there, and the momentum swung back in our side. We go out, and our great pitching staff throws up a zero. And let's try it again the next inning. And then that run, that momentum continues to build each run. They're getting farther behind. You're getting farther ahead, and you've kept the momentum on your side. You know, I mean, that's, that, that's my brand of baseball. And I, that look, whether I like it or not, that's just not going to be the way that it is. I think it'll be cyclical, and I think there will be a time when the offense, again, catches up with the pitching, and they're – I'm talking about literally catching up to 100 mile an hour fastballs. They'll learn to hit it, but um, I can't. I can't stand it to the point that it, I questioned continuing to do this job. Yeah, that, that, that's that's how much. I mean, what what do you want me to talk about? What what am I talking about here? Uh, he popped up. He struck out. He walked. 
the game's three and a half hours long because it takes six pitches for every batter because they're either going to strike him out or walk him. Yeah. Or he's going to hit a bomb. <laughs> yeah, or hit, or hit a bomb. And then that's, that. you know, I think that that's kind of the, you know, a microcosm of, shit, I'm like, oh, excuse me. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of, this podcast, you're good. <laughs> okay, that's kind of a microcosm of, I think, society today. They want that instant gratification. They want to see the, the home run hit, the celebration, and then go back and start looking at your phone. Yeah. They don't want to watch the baseball game and look how and watch how good Yadier Molina is and about how he does the game. Oh, I'm probably gonna get in trouble for that. You know, or a Javier Baez and his instincts. Like you, those guys, you can tell they're yep. exciting players because they're reading the game and they seem to always be in the right position because they're paying attention. Uh, it's not by accident. Yeah, I, I mean, I could literally sit here and talk base, like baseball strategy with you all day, Sam. I mean, <laughs> I was going to say, do you, now do you want to know how I really feel about it? Yeah, yeah. So, so the other, I, I promise I won't belabor this point, but the other night, this is what drove me the craziest. So I'm a big Astros fan. Okay. Really? Up. Yeah, I'm sorry. It, I mean, you know, it is what it is these days. But um, <laughs> and, I, and and I love Dusty. I really do. And you know, you yeah. probably did, did you play for Dusty actually? I played for Dusty from 2010 to 2014. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought that was probably the right time frame. So, so Dusty, the other night, so this new rule, right, in extra innings, they start with a runner on second base. Um, we can – that we could also belabor, but let's just yeah. – we're okay with that because it is what it is. So, yeah. Astros are at home against the Dodgers. So, home team, Dodgers didn't score in the top half of the 10th. So, Astros – they only need one run to win. Guy on second, I can't, and I wish I could remember who the batter was. I mean, that's an obvious bunt situation, right? Like you get that guy over to third, and then you got two, and then you got an out to play. Sack fly wins the game, right? That's all it is, and they don't bunt, and that guy gets stuck on second and never moves off of second. Next couple guys strike out, game, you know, go on, and they end up losing the ball game. And to me, I just don't get it. Like I think it's just gone, and I don't know if guys don't even practice bunting anymore or what the case. I mean. Is. That, that's what's going to be kind of my comeback a little bit is that, you know, guys don't know how to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, it's such a lost art of the game that people don't know how to do it. If you're going to do that, pitch hit one of your pitchers. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? If you, probably if you want a bunt, yeah. send the pitcher up there because he has a better chance of getting that bunt down than your offensive player because they don't practice. Yeah, yeah, fair point. I mean, they, and, and if they do practice, they don't take it seriously. It's right before their first round of batting practice. They go out there. Bowling this way, bowling that way, and just start trying to hit it to the next state. You know what I mean? So, um, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, is your question, do I agree with the bunt or no bunt? No, it was really just more of a me. You're just trying to get, you're just trying to get me wound up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, I think, I think I've got you wound up enough. Um, so you're wearing a, let's, let's switch gears. And then Zach, I promise I'm not going to completely overtake this conversation, but so you're wearing a stand up to cancer t-shirt or our, our, our listeners can't, can't see that, but uh, you are. So talk about that. Is that an organization that you have a lot of interest in here in retire baseball retirement? What is that? Um, no, so this is something that, like major league baseball got in, got together with a few years ago. Um, you know, just kind of creating awareness. I think at all-star games, you know, they, when they started holding up the signs that, you know, wrote somebody's name was affected. I think possibly at the time, I mean, I've had this shirt for quite some time, so it's not, I didn't wear it on purpose. Um, the, uh, you know, my dad had cancer. Everybody knows somebody who's got cancer and I think it's, I, I still wear it, even though it's not, you know, kind of in the news or whatever the case may be, because I think it's important to understand that, you know, people, everybody's got things going on. I think now more than ever, you know, during this pandemic, we all have one thing in common. We're all a slave to this thing. 
you know what I mean? So we ha everybody's got one thing in common. And, you know, with all the kind of the nonsense that's going on in the world, you know, understand that people have bad days. And, you know, I'm, I don't consider myself a religious man. I was raised that way. My mom's a devout, devout Catholic. Um, it's just the golden rule, man. Like, it's, I think, more bringing awareness to let's treat everybody, treat everybody like they are having a bad day. If that, you know, if, if, if that's what, if that's what makes it click in your head, because man, we could just use some good vibes going on right now. You know, there's all this, let's, let's de definitely not belabor the, you know, political sides of things and all that stuff. I mean, you know, it's conversations that people need to have together because it's important, but it always seems to just turn hot and I don't want to turn this, this is, and I don't want to turn this podcast out, but just more of an awareness of, you know, people got things going on and if, if we can all treat each other well, if everybody can just do that one thing, uh, then we're going to start making some strides. So, Sam, you broke in with the Reds in 2010. Okay. And I was lucky enough to be part of the media core here in Cincinnati that covered a good good part of your career. Yeah. Tell me just your memories of being on really, really good teams with the Reds, oh. playoff teams, uh, playing the Phillies in 2010, the Giants in 2012. You had a one-game playoff with the Pirates. Just uh, those have to be just – things that will never leave you i would think no. just in terms of, of the memories that were made and those situations that were just forged in your mind so 2010 obviously is a very special year i was called up that year you know kind of cut my teeth so to speak had six starts you know in the middle of a season when you know this team was it was a playoff team at that point it was late may was my first uh, you know may 28th was my first start you know there how were you called up how were you called I, up so i had just come off a um my best start of my career. Uh, the, the outing before I got called up, I threw a complete game shutout, one hit. Uh, it was an 0-2 pitch uh, I, I, that got too much play. The guy blooped in for the only hitter. I, I would have had a no-hitter. Um, so I think that was with two outs in the seventh inning. So I was, I was getting close. Um, threw that one, and then Homer goes down, um, and he was pitching on the Homer same day. Elmer Bailey goes down and uh, he was pitching on the same day that I was. So I'm like, huh, well, if they're going to call somebody up, it's probably going to be me. It's my day to start. I just dealt on these guys. I was throwing the ball well. Um, we had an off day, I think, two or three days before that scheduled start. So it would have been, you know, maybe 25th, 26th or something like that. I think the 25th. We had an off day. I packed that day. Uh, to go up to Cincinnati <laughs> before okay. they even, before they even called me, I was like, I'm going. I was like, not in my in my mind. I was thinking, if they don't think I'm ready now, then I'm, I wasn't saying I'll never will be, but I was like, I'm more prepared for this start now than maybe I'll ever be and have ever been in the past. Um, so, yep, they called me up. Uh, Rick Sweet called me, the manager of Louisville Bass at the time, and you know, like I said, I was like, hey man, I appreciate it. You know, I basically told him I was already driving up to Cincinnati. Uh, you know, so I, I, honestly, God had the ba had my bag packed, ready to go. Went up, had a great day. Well, not a great debut. Six innings, two runs against the Astros. Uh, I think we scored 15 runs. I think the final score ended up being 15 to six or something. Uh, I think I walked Lance Berkman three times. I remember how he used to kill the Reds. So I was Reds like, killer. Yeah, Reds I was like, he's not beating me, baby. I, I like, played high school ball with Lance. Oh, you did for two years. Yeah, at Austin High the and on the New Braunfels Canyon. But yeah. Yeah, uh, so I wasn't going to let him beat me. Uh, after that, I went. I, my next four starts were against Cy Young winners. Uh, we lost them all. Um, and I got sent down, came back up later that year. Was you know It was pretty fairly recent, uh, 
we, we clinched the division. I think I got called up again, like, uh, would have been August 28th or 30th, somewhere around there to go to San Francisco. Um, did the thing there, came back to Cincinnati, Brucey hits the home run. We go nuts for the celebration. Uh, to be a part of that was pretty special, even though I didn't, you know, I mean, I knew the guys obviously being in spring training and had to have, you know, a lot of homegrown players on those teams that I knew uh, it was pretty special to be a part of. Um, I was not on the, pl the playoff roster that year. Uh, I was on the playoff roster in 2012. And it's funny you bring it up. Uh, we're doing the Ohio cup here against Cleveland right now. And um, in 2012, that's this series versus Cleveland kind of became the rallying cry for that team. So in a way, um, it's not, like I said, the Ohio cup, uh, Ryan Ludwig was on the team, a great friend of mine lives in Georgetown, Matt, um, down there near Austin. Yep. And he and I still keep in real good touch. And I sent him a picture of the cup and I was like, Hey man, I was like, you know, kind of the cook that he was, <laughs> I can't get into all of the, <laughs> the terminology, but so it was basically, he's walking around the clubhouse. He's like, man, I want that cup. You know, we're in Cleveland. He's like, I want that cup. You know, he did, you just have to hear his voice, like to be able to get it. And so we, we went out there, we played well, we went, we got that cup. And then every series that we had the rest of the year, became some kind of cup because of this rant he went on like a funny rant it wasn't like he was you know yelling at guys in the clubhouse like hey we need to get this together nothing like it was just him being funny and like wound up one day on some red bull or who knows what and, uh you know i want that cup every series the rest of the year the cream cheese cup the arch cup in st louis you know we're talking about philly every city we went into we named it a different cup the snake cup where, for the diamondbacks <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't remember the what Snake that, Cup, Dodger Cup, yeah, that's hilarious. Something like that, you know, but it was something like to that city, like the, you know, the SoCal Cup in San Diego, maybe the Gas Lamp Cup, because the Gas Lamp District in San Diego, you know, whatever it was, just something about the city to where we had the, a rookie that year was Devin Mezzarocco. Uh We sent him to an antique store, and he came comes back with this huge chalice, like a Stanley Cup. We made him take it on every road trip. He had to carry that damn thing, made it, uh, put ice and beer in it, carried it on all the flights. Every road trip we went on the rest of the year was some kind of cup. And that was the best baseball. I'm getting goosebumps, dude. <laughs> I was, that was, uh, that that was, was a hell of best, a team, too. That that was 97 win team. I've, I've ever been a part of. Um, oh, my God. I wish you could see my legs. Uh, the best baseball that I have ever been a part of. And we were, that'll stay with me forever. You look, but I, we were the best team in baseball that year and we didn't win the world series. Um, and we had a golden opportunity to do so. So that, that'll stick with me, uh, forever. Probably my greatest, you know, I don't regret much. And obviously it was not completely in my control to win the world series by myself, but, um, that's what I played this game for, uh, to win, to win and have friends for life. And that year was our chance. So 2012, you guys win 97 games, clinch at home against, I believe, the L.A. Dodgers. Then it kind of – it was odd because with scheduling, the you go out to San Francisco. Card, yeah. yeah, you go out to San Francisco, play the first two games, then come home, hadn't lost three in a row all year, lose three in a row to the Giants. But that, that game number one in San Francisco, I know you'll never forget Sam. I don't think any Reds fan will ever forget Johnny Cueto, who now pitches for the Giants, was the ace of that staff. And – Injured is like a lat muscle or something behind his shoulder. Then you come in as a reliever. And I want to ask you, 
you pitched great. How much was Augie with you in that situation? And all um, of those experiences at the University of Texas, it can't be too big. It's 60 feet, six inches away, and it's time to pitch. That's it. I mean, you said it right there. I mean, you, can't, you cannot let any situation be too big for you. You know, you have to seize, you know, what do they say, carpe diem, that seize the day, whatever seize the moment is. I mean, that was a moment where I it was probably almost blessed. Uh, that was my first postseason experience that um, I didn't have any chance to think about it. It's like, hey, I mean, I, I remember I hadn't even kind of done my little pregame, you know, Red Bull, Nutrigrain bar combination that I did. Um, I hadn't even finished that. You know, he's eight pitches in. And then it's like, come on. I'm like, okay, you know, like whatever, like warming up on the game mound in front of a packed house. And, they, you know, in San Francisco, they're, they're great fans for their team out there. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have a ton of time to think about it, actually. And I think that was a blessing. To, and, that, like I said, my sharpest tool, I had a pretty good – I could locate the fastball pretty well, but my mind uh, was strong. And I, that's what I always trained for, you know, in the offseason. I'm going through workouts, and, you know, I had kind of a goofy, obscure stat with the bases loaded while I was pitching. Um, you know, very, very few runners score, basically, is the short story, is the short story of it. Uh, the way I trained in the offseason every year was when I was not feeling – like knocking out that last set or running that last sprint or whatever it was, was, Hey man, it's going to come down to, we're going to win the, every year, every year. didn't matter the team that other people thought we had. I thought we were going to win the world series every year. And I was like, and it is going to come down to you. I was like, we're going to be in game seven of the world series. Chappie for whatever reason, is not going to have it that night. And he's going to have to leave with the bases loaded and it's going to be you because you dominate with the bases loaded. I was like, so you've trained for that right now. So I, that's all I thought about. I was like, Chappie's going to have to come out of the game in the bottom of the seventh of the world series with the bases loaded. And I'm going to be the guy they call upon because that's what I do. Um, so that's how I trained. That's how my mind was always working. Like it was always on that prize. Uh, and then I never strayed from it. So when I had that opportunity, I had been prep training for that opportunity since October of the previous year. Like I was like, you know, talking about the process and controlling the controllables. I controlled them all to that point in my head. And like, I, that wasn't my best season statistically. Um, but I was a part of a great bullpen. Oh my God, that bullpen, that team. Huh. God, Can you put into words how physically insane a Roldis Chapman is? In terms of just <laughs> uh, no, I what can't. he brings to the my... baseball mound. So, so for people that are that are listening in, he's now the closer for the New York Yankees, and uh, Cincinnati, Chicago, New York, back to Chicago, a, a big journey. But now he's in the Bronx. One 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 afternoon, Sam, you were there in, in San Diego. He touched the radar gun at hundred and five. Yeah. Were, were you guys in the pen like, did we just see this right at 105? We saw the reading on the board, but we did not see the baseball. Okay. <laughs> I mean, oh my God. And this guy, he will outrun Usain Bolt. He, I mean, if you're, if, I, if you have Instagram, go look, look at him on Instagram. Like he is, he, I mean, the workouts this guy does, he is enormous. I mean, he is a true freak. I think we used to call him like something like a Megatron, a playoff of just, what was the guy's name? Calvin Johnson that was the receiver for the Lions. Is that it? Yeah. yeah, Calvin Johnson. Yeah. Called him something like, I mean, just an absolute freak athlete, human being. Uh, and one of my best buds, man. We, so he, when he came over, we were 
we played in triple a louisville when he was a starting pitcher we still keep in great touch you know he's he's a he's a good dude man i'm so happy to see him doing well that's awesome so augie garrido you learned how to use your mind um, at the highest level of college baseball highest level of professional baseball you played for dusty baker and for brian price uh, lessons that those two imparted Dust, dusty. first dusty then brian price dusty was very similar as far as like you know a mental you know, a, a mental coach, a mentality kind of guy, pushing the right buttons of what guys needed to hear, understanding. I mean, this guy's incredible. Like, he, I swear he has a Rolodex. He must – he has to check in with 30 people a day. He's still – I mean, he and I still talk fairly – I mean, it's like regularly. It's like a quarterly call or something like that uh, where he's checking in on people. He's – he just – people want to be near him and they don't even know why. Um, he – was a guy that I shared some in that San Francisco game you're talking about. I went up to, and there's a picture I have framed uh, that he signed for me for my birthday a few years ago that, you know, him and I kind of arm around each other in the dugout right after I'd come out of that game. And I was, when I had gone over there and told him that a couple of weeks prior, we were playing in St. Louis and they, you know, those, you know, those Cardinal fans and how they get behind them. And um, I'm pitching, in the, you know, seventh, eighth inning or something like that. I think maybe the score is like 6-2. It's not like super tight. I mean, it's close. You know, they're striking, Dusty would say, slam range, but close enough. And I think I got the first out of the inning, and then it's then I go 2-0 on a guy named Daniel Descalzo. Um, and still then they, yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. He's put together a hell of a career. Um, and then the crowd just gets into it on, on a 2-0 count with Daniel Descalzo up, and, and I felt him. And I felt, and I think that that was the first time I'd ever felt that before. Um, you know, this is mid-September, so we're getting right, right down to the end of the season. And I remember feeling that, and remember actually stepping off the mound. Um, I think I, I think I walked him. I think I ended up walking him. I don't. I'm not going to blame, or I'm not going to give credit to their fans, but I walked him, um, and they were on. You know, like they were. They were right behind him, man. They're like, this is the start of a rally. A one-out walk to Daniel Descalzo with some rag arm from, you know, two hours away here in St. Louis, you know, from two hours away, uh, we're going to get on him. And so I went over to Dusty after that and, and told him, I said, hey, man, like, I don't know if I'd have been able to handle that uh, other than what just happened in St. Louis. I was like, because I was about to feel the same thing here, and then I remembered that I was just there. And I think that's why I was able to, you know, harness my – my composure there and go out there and, and not be afraid of it, you know, not be afraid of that moment, but to, you know, to relish it and use it as motivation to go out there. I have my boys here. We're all fighting this thing together. Like I'm, I'm not going to be the one, like I told you with my kind of mentality, uh, Dusty was, I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine a better guy to, to be broken into the big leagues with. He cared about you. He cared about your family. He knew your family's name. He knew where you came from. He knew when we were going into a certain city that a guy was from there, and you better be sure that guy was going to be playing in that series, no matter what. That's I mean, how he it is. Does, it, it does not matter what. If it was a must-win series and it's the 25th fifth man on the roster, he was going to start a game because that's what, you know, that's, that's what he was about. So um, I remember so many great things about Dusty, man. Uh, Brian Price was the pitching coach at that time where Dusty was, was the manager, and Brian and I still keep in great touch what a great mind and a thoughtful man, um, you know, talk about, you know, being meticulous and having all your boxes, controlling all the controllables. I mean, he had the information, but he'd made it um, individual. 
you know, it wasn't, he was certainly not a cookie cutter type of guy. It was under, again, understanding what made each guy tick. And that's what makes those guys great at what they do. Dusty's a great manager. Brian's a great pitching coach. Um, I didn't play for Brian as a manager long enough to tell you whether I think Brian was a great manager or not. Uh, so I won't get into it, but he was a, he was my pitching coach and he was great because he always had a way of, you know, telling, you know, telling you what you need to hear and the way that you need to hear. Some guys need to be patted on the butt. Some guys need to be smacked upside the head. I mean, I can go either way. I prefer the smack upside the head. Like, Hey, this is real. Like focus in here. Like, let's get with it and let's go to work. Uh, but Brian, you know, what a, a great sense of humor. Uh, again, a, just a thoughtful individual so will send you a card from time to time or me a card when I, you know, something happened. Hey, saw you got on the Reds TV show or whatever it's called, you know, like proud of you, always here for you, you know, things like that. Just to let you, doesn't have to be much, just to let you know he's thinking of you. Uh, so I was, man, I've, now you got me going back down memory lane a little bit. I realized how fortunate I was. I'll tell you what, Brian Price, talking about his sense of humor, I was at spring training one year. And after Aroldis Chapman came over from Cuba and the Reds signed him, I believe in 2010. So I know that his teammates and you were a part of this, I'm sure Sam is as part of the bullpen brotherhood, you were, you were trying to teach him English. So he was throwing in Goodyear one day and, and he's on the man and he didn't locate exactly where he wanted to. And he goes, F just drops a bomb. And Brian comes over and he goes, that's nice English, Chappie. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. It, it doesn't awesome. make it too much about that. He's like, hey, let's, you know, let's let's keep it light. We're like, we're gonna go out there, we're gonna compete our tails off every single pitch. But we ha you have to be able to release that too. You you can't carry that around with you all the time, or or you'll you just snap on people, man. Like when I got out into the real world, the way I talk to people, how I I, you can't do that anymore. The way that I talk to guys in the clubhouse, you can't do that anymore. Like, right. and, and people were looking, people would look at me like, chill out. Like, that's just the way that I've talked to people my whole life. I'm still learning that because I'm, you know, pretty sharp tongue a lot of times because that's how I respond. But, you know, he was great. Like, you know, keep it light. And there was always a group thread going on where he's saying some nonsense. Uh, I had, I had a great group. That's funny. So, Sam, let me ask you this. Uh, baseball is totally different now than – it seems like in five years it's changed dramatically. You know, no bunding, home runs, strikeouts. The, the situation in Houston, would you as a pitcher rather pitch to a guy who's playing clean, no PEDs, and he knows everything that's coming from you, or would you rather pitch to a guy who's on steroids and you can use some deception and he doesn't know what's coming? Ooh. Um, this is, I'll give you a second to think, Sam. This is, <laughs> this is Zach's little jab at my Astro. I know, I know it is. I, I know it is. I was, get, I was just about to just cut him off right. I said, uh, Matt, would you care to take this one? Uh, I, got, I got to go knock on the trash can. I, I guess <laughs> let, let me just ask you this. You talk about your mind. How important was deception and working with the catcher and being able to artfully navigate and at bat to you in terms of prolonging your career and having the hitter not know everything that's coming? That's, I mean, that's, that's pitching. I mean, that's the art of pitching. That's what I'm, that's what's not really a part of the game. Now it's just throw as hard as you can, blow your O-ring out and see where it goes. Nobody cares where it goes anymore as long as it's spinning fast. Like, I mean, come on, dude. What happened to challenging people with your fastball and being able to locate a pitch? The best pitcher in the world right now is Shane Bieber. Go watch him hit pitch. 
And what's where he operates on the corner of that, that strike zone box that's in there, which I hate the strike zone box, but it gives you a good indication of where misses are. If he misses, he misses four inches just off of where he was aiming, not four feet across the thing. Yeah, because guys, Shane Bieber, so right-handed so pitcher for Cleveland, that's a yeah. ball player now. He's a ball no player. Yeah. No question. And he's going out there and he's pitching to zones that, so he's controlling the count. I always believe there's so much scouting report that goes on around now. Um, they know what's coming to a certain degree. They, they can check things off. Like if I throw, if I throw fastball, curveball, changeup, I pre- I don't, I'm pretty, pretty rare. I throw a change up to right-handed hitters. So if I'm facing right-handed hitter, they got a 50% chance pretty much against what I'm going to throw. And it boils down to what? Executing. That's it. I mean, I, so I guess I'd rather face, I don't care. I face them both. I face the guys banging on the trash can and with a needle hanging out of his ass. Like if I execute my pitch, like it doesn't matter to me. Like the guy, okay. on, the guy, on, you know, if they, they may know the pitch, they don't know where. And that's where if everything's the same all the time, if you throw a fastball, if you throw 100 fastballs and all of them are 93 or 94, they're timed. If you can throw 100 fastballs and 20 of them are 82 miles an hour and 20 of them are 86 miles an hour and 20 of them are whatever the math is going to be, but at 90 miles an hour and 20 more at 93, you throw one pitch with, t- with a 10-mile-per-hour deg- separation that you're located. I pitched at 90%. I, th- I could have thrown harder if I wanted to, I think. Um, <laughs> that's what I tell myself anyway. But I was under control at the percentage I was throwing at to control the ball. Like, that's was my – that's what I wanted to do was to be able to control the ball and manipulate the strike zone and make strikes look like balls and balls look like strikes and, you know, things like that. Um, you know, that was pitching to me, so I backed off the gas pedal to be able to do that. I could have thrown harder and would have been erratic like the guys you see today are. Guys miss their location by a foot and a half, and then it becomes a belt-high fun ball is what we call it, where guys are just teeing off of it and the home runs, the extra base hits, pitching at the top of the zone. Um, so as, to answer your question, I don't care, either of them, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rely on my preparation, going to my strengths, and executing my game plan. So I'm curious, since we opened this Astros door – <laughs> feel about the game i got a lot now first matt i got, I got a lot of buddies in texas and yeah. a lot of ash and a lot of astros fans i follow them fairly closely so i can keep on the up on the banter so yeah i don't think you're gonna slide anything by me here so just be careful <laughs> no, no, no. I, and, and hey I, I will be the first person to say you know i i look I've, i have to talk to my 10 year old son who is a huge astros fan loves jose altuve like he's his own dad yeah, and, and so, I mean, from a dad's perspective, right, this is a conversation we've had to have, right, about, you know, he's disappointed. And, and so, trust me, like, this is no fun for any of us, right? Yeah. So, which is, which is actually, going back to Dusty real quick, tell, you telling those stories, that's actually why I think Dusty was the perfect guy for this job, right? right. You know, and I, I, think, I think he's going to love those guys like, like family. I do too, man. I love gonna, that team. Yeah, and, and and those you know, and, and I think and I think if you if you put truth serum in them, they all wish they could go back in time and without and, a doubt and, and change and change the narrative, right? But but my question really is about the game facing <laughs> itself. I'm sure you saw and you don't have to name names or anything, but I'm sure you saw the Joe Kelly incident the other day and you know, from a from a fan's perspective, that was ninety six behind Alex's head. And but I'm but I'm curious, you know, from a pitcher's perspective, I've always t- sort of taken this tack, especially as hard as guys throw today. I've always taken this tack of wouldn't you rather rather just 
amp it up and strike those guys out than hit them in the butt. I'm just curious from your perspective, what do you think about this kind of today modern game policing itself, yada, yada? Uh, well, I will say that strikeouts are so accepted across baseball. Like you're not going to hurt anybody's feelings by striking yeah, them out. That's a fair point. One. I like, I, I'm a big believer in policing the game. There's a way to do it. It scares me now because, like, I was talking about I, – I, I hit a number of guys in my, my entire baseball career. I'm not saying big leagues, college, high school. I hit a lot of guys in my career on purpose, and I hit them from about the bottom of that lat muscle. So, basically, from the bottom of your tit down to the knee. You know, in that area, probably hit them in the butt. I didn't throw hard enough to scare anybody anyway, but it was a message, and it was clear. The guys today, we talk about not being able to control the strike zone. They're throwing it as hard as they can. They don't know where it's going. That scares me because yeah. is a guy's life worth him cheating you out of your World Series that you possibly would have won? No, it's not. I mean, however, I, I think you should hit him. I'd hit all, I'd hit all of them because, I mean, that's you talk about bread on the table. If somebody told you – that you had an opportunity to reach the pinnacle of your profession, but somebody else cheated their weight, you'd want to punch them. Yeah. Wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. What's the, how's that different from throwing a baseball at them? I mean, look, for all that matter, I would, I hope they turn baseball into hockey into where if you want some, you go get something. You two get your ass over there on the sideline and you duke it out. Enough of this pushing around, but like that drives me nuts. A bunch <laughs> of Tommy tough guys going over there, acting like they're going to do something wait for their team to come out there and hold them back when they're when they had an opportunity they were standing two feet from the guy knock his teeth out like yeah. don't talk about it be about it so i hate all this posturing bullshit if you're gonna hit them hit them and do it properly and get on with it then the message is sent but i uh i mean i do believe in policing baseball but to that point you cannot put people's lives in jeopardy uh, to do that, and if you don't know where you're throwing the baseball, then you shouldn't be the one throwing at him. Bring Sam LeCure in. It's like throwing a grape at him. You're going to hit him in the butt. They know you're pissed off and, like, get to first base. Then I, You know what I mean? Yeah. Then you know that you're you're being held accountable. Like, I believe, in I believe in players policing the game. They've taken, you know, Major League Baseball's taken that out. They want to give everybody a ribbon. I'm sorry if I'm pissing anybody who's off that's listening to this, but I'm passionate about it because – I knew I played. I know I played this game the right way, and there is a way for it to be played. And it's not, you know, let's not try to dress it up. Let's not try to make it something it's not. It's it's tough guys going out there and, and getting after it, competing their tails off because they love to compete and made the best man win. Yeah, and you're totally right. I mean, I, I think it makes a huge difference who's doing it right. I mean, we were talking about Shane Bieber earlier. I trust that Bieber's going to stick it exactly where he yeah. wanted to stick it, right? Yeah. Sam Kerr could do that. Joe Kelly. Not so much. No. I mean, that guy broke a window in his own house because he yeah. couldn't keep it controlled. Exactly. Uh, now, now, do I appreciate Joe Kelly going out there and, like, trying to police it? Yeah, I sure. appreciate that. But, dude, not yeah. – like, you can't do that. Like, if right. you know – you'll back off the gas and throw it 93 off of his ribs rather than 97 at his ear. Like, right. that, that's yeah. not cool. Yeah. And then what I also heard you say is that let's give Robin Ventura some credit for just taking Nolan Ryan straight on. Right. Sure. He didn't wait. He didn't wait for his teammates. Now, now Nolan, a good Texas boy did what he had to do. Right. He did. He did. But he, but he went out there and he, you know, took and he took it like a man. If you haven't had your, your butt whipped by this point in your life, like you haven't lived yet, you know, everybody's yeah. got to get the, their tail whipped from time to time. At least he was a man about it. He went out there and 
got his ass whipped, and he kept playing baseball. And by know? the way, like, if you're going to get neither, – neither, neither of them probably got thrown out. They probably went and had a beer afterwards. Right. You become best friends with guys that you fight because you respect them for standing well, up and, like, being somebody. And if you're going to get your ass kicked, let's be honest, let's get our ass kicked by Nolan Ryan. By Nolan Ryan, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can take that. There's no shame in that. <laughs> I'd frame the picture of me that. getting my butt whooped by Nolan Ryan. I'd put it in my office. I'd be like, no doubt about it. Honor, no doubt. Oh, you yeah. better believe Robin Ventura has that hanging somewhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, Sam, you're uh, one of eight kids in uh-huh. Jefferson City, Missouri. Is that about two hours from St. Louis? Yes, two hours, right dead in the middle of the state. So, for a, you're, and you're the youngest yeah. of eight. What was yeah. that like, having such a big family growing up? Uh, it was amazing, man. I, uh, you know, I, I, I got to learn a lot. You know, you learn from your own mistakes. But, you know, getting to watch my seven older siblings, you know, because my oldest sibling is 50 will be 57 next month. So there, I have five siblings in their fifties. Uh, so I, you know, when I was growing up, I got to watch them live their twenties and thirties, you know, where I'm at in life now. Uh, so I had an opportunity to kind of learn from them. And then I've got two other siblings that are more near my age, but um, it was an awesome, man. I mean, I love the family get togethers. That was always my favorite thing in the whole world to do was to, when I was off to college or whatever, wherever I was to come back and have family, you know, barbecues. We lived out in a rural area, you know, no farming, but near farms, um, had our nice little spread out there and, you know, we'd all get together and we had enough to field a baseball team. So we played a lot of ball in the front yard. We played a lot of basketball in the basketball court, little concrete slab that we had. It was, you know, and we were all, we were always out there competing. And I think that that shaped me a lot. You know, if somebody overthrew me while we were playing catch, you know, and, and I didn't run to go get it. They let me hear about it. You know, it's like, Hey, hustle up. Like, let's go. I still hustle. I go out and play catch with my nephews. Now he's eight years old. He overthrows me. Like I run after it. You know, I want him to see that, you know, that's, that's shaping your next generation and showing them how to hustle and not just drag their ass over to get it because like, Oh, well you threw it, dude. Number one, why am I going to get it? But I'm, but if I'm going to go get it, I'm going to get it the right way. Um, I don't have children of my own. So I, you know, have an opportunity. I have 18 nieces and nephews. Uh, you know, I'm really close with a lot of them, you know, close as you can be with that many, that much of a family, but, um, you know, we're all, we're all close, but, you know, but people in different stages of their lives, people, you know, you see, if you're, you know, just like your friends, they have kids, you know, this is just my family, you know, they have kids, they got to run them to sports and they're running to this and they're running all the time and they're running around. So uh, it doesn't happen as much as I'd like it to, but, uh, when it, when we get together, it's, it's still a, still like a, still like winning the division title. <laughs> we like to get after it. Do you remember the first time somebody told you that you have the ability and or the mindset to play major league baseball? Who was it? And did you believe the person at the time? Um, I believe it was me. Um, when I was young, I believed that I, that's what I wanted to do. <clears throat> I remember feeling like, I, my first varsity start in high school was like the, the moment, like then I truly felt like there was something else going on there um, where I went up, you know, I was a freshman. I went up and dominated, you know, the highest classification in Missouri. It's not Texas baseball, but they were a nationally ranked type of team. Um, and then went up and just dominated them my freshman year. I remember being pissed off that they left me off the varsity team to begin with and told them so. Um, usually I fall in line pretty good, you know, kind of, if you don't like it, play better type of mindset. But I told him, I thought that I should have been on and I came up and dominated them. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm better than, 
I'm four years, I'm three years younger than these guys and I'm better than them. I'm out, I'm out playing my, I'm dominating my competition at this level as a freshman. Let's, you know, obviously as I went through high school, it was better and better. When I think when I was 15 or 16, a guy, I was playing select ball around the state of Missouri uh, with a group of, you know, country freaking red, you know, my boys and we played ball, you know, I mean, we go out and, Anyway, <laughs> I'm not going to get into all that, but we were kind of playing around in the state of Missouri, maybe just over the Kansas border, just into Illinois, something like that. Uh, and then this guy came when I was 15 or 16 out of St. Louis, and he's saying, um, hey, we want, I want you to come on and play on this team. We're like a regional team. We're, we go to universities, and, you know, it's kind of a, a, it's a college recruiting, you know, thing, basically. It's like showcase tournaments you know, for teams and such like that. And I was like, ah, you know, man, I'm sorry. I already committed to, you know, to play for this local team. Um, so I, I'm not going to break that commitment. Uh, and he's like, couldn't believe it. <laughs> he's like, okay. Uh, I was like, but, you know, keep in touch with me. Like that's, I would absolutely love to do it. I was like, I've just made the commitment to this team. And so when he came in and started talking to me, like, then it was like, okay, I'm not the only one who kind of sees it and whatnot. And, um, so after that regional, that little group, that state Missouri state select ball team, we finished up, they were still playing a tournament or two. And he asked if I would come along and do it. And I went out and I did well, you know? And so I was like, okay. He's like, well, we want you to play the next year. You know, they, he wants good players on his team because it attracts, you know, the more good players you have on your team, the more scouts are going to come see that team and see the other players around that they may not have heard of. Right. You know, and I was probably the guy that they hadn't heard of at that point, but it got to the point where I was, you know, that's where I really made my mark was on that summer league with that team playing up against, you know, at that time, elite high school competition and was going out there and really kicking some, kicking some butt. Um, that was some of the best baseball I've ever pitched. And I tell you the big leagues, college, whatever, like I, that was, that's where I made my marks. So and then people were coming to see me and got to see other guys on the team. And that was a special time for me too. I uh, still keep in great touch with a lot of those guys. Um, and so that's, I'd, I'd say when he came calling and then I started whipping, uh, that's when I was like, okay, this is, this is, this is something. Did I answer the question? Yeah, you absolutely did. And then, when, I tell, when I tell you about that mind being sharp, sometimes it gets sometimes it gets a little dull, and I forget what the hell I'm talking about. But I felt like I did. You're all, it's only downhill from here, Sam. I hate to oh. break it to you. I got I got a few years on you, and it gets. Yeah, I'll believe me. Yeah, I'm, Sam, I'm, I'm telling you what, man. When you exit Highway 40, it is one of the best birthdays of your entire life. I think you hit there. You get to oh. Highway 40 in 2024, turn 40. It's it's phenomenal. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll good. see. So, Sam, I, feel, toughest... I, I feel about as good as I ever have in my life right now. I, That's I'm awesome. Here, I'm here in Cincinnati. I finally, you know, that routine I'm talking about, I know what it is. I get up, I make my breakfast, I work out or swim or something. I do my thing here, meal prep for the evening, go into work, try and do my best to that job that I can, go to sleep tired, get up and do it the next day. I'm, I feel I feel like if my arm would hold up, I feel like I'd be right back out there in the bullpen. But uh, but I feel great. My energy's high. My mind's clear. Uh, you know, find silver linings in a tough 2020. That's awesome. Well, let's let's um, wrap it up here with a, a couple of uh, maybe quick questions, quick answers. Toughest hitter you faced as a pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds was? Okay, you got to specify toughest hit, like who I thought was the best hitter or who I had the most trouble getting out. Both. 
Okay, uh, who the best hitter I ever faced? I mean, I faced Albert when he was Albert. Uh, I mean, him and Miguel Cabrera when he won the Triple Crown in 2012 was probably one of my favorite strikeouts of my career. Um, got him, but, yeah, probably those two jumped to mind at first. But, you know, I mean, I faced Trout before he was like a Trout Trout. Um, I faced a lot of those guys. The guy that get, seemed to give me the most trouble was Starlin Castro. Uh, played shortstop, second base, still playing. I think he's with uh, maybe Philly now. Yes. No. Uh, or the no, he's with Washington. Correct. He's with Washington. Uh, I I don't remember, but he he swung at everything, and I was always around the zone. Um, so he I, he was always seemed a guy that I wasn't always pumped to see him. Come. I mean, I was pumped because I wanted a chance to get him, but uh, he's a guy that sticks out as somebody who had success against me. What can parents of little league baseball players do? to make sure they're supporting their kids in a healthy way leave them alone if they want to if the kid you know it's like uh <laughs> if the kids want to play they'll play like i nobody ever told me to go play baseball i was i'd go out and get the ball throw it up against the wall a thousand times piss my mom off quit throwing the ball against the garage i mean just a tennis ball you know i have the x downstairs in our basement was on a concrete wall it's a masking tape X that's still there. I mean, I used to go down there and I just, we had a long basement with nothing really in it, just kind of a whatever. I'd go down there and throw it, throw at it forever. And then when I was getting, when I was throwing too hard where it was coming back at me too fast, I put a mattress up and I put X's on it. I'd sit down there and throw at it or I'd put a T up and I'd hit into it. I mean, if they want to play, they're going to play. You jumping down their ass for not, you know, having the perfect swing that the, you know, the coach that you're sending them to, to, uh, you know, you're paying $100 an hour because you didn't do it like that. That's not going to help them. They're not, they're, then they're wanting to play for you. They're wanting to play for the parent. And that's not how they're going to fall in love with the game. And that's not how they're going to be doing it to, to what's that word? I'm, please you, you know, rather than because they love it and they're going to do it and have fun. So I'd say leave them alone. They'll, if they want it, they'll, they will do it. I promise. And if you were to help a retired player now, what kind of letter would you write to yourself when your career was over and what would be the best advice for people to kind of find their way when the game is not available to them anymore? Um, what would I say to myself? Or, or to somebody else who's retiring now or who, who's leaving the game in 2020, maybe not by say, their choice. I would say, uh, ask a lot of questions, you know, to people that you respect, not people that you're, don't ask questions of people you're, you're trying to please and, uh, you know, ask questions of people that you respect in areas of life that you're interested in. Um, don't be afraid to look stupid because you, you're a baseball player. You probably already are. Um, you know, make sure, you know, make sure you keep good people around you. Understand that, that people are going to treat you differently now, whether you thought they were treating you differently because you were a ball player or not, you will find out now uh, because you're no longer Zach Wells, the baseball player, you're Zach Wells and you don't play baseball anymore and you can't leave them tickets and you're not on TV and they will treat you differently. And it's, it's humbling and it sucks, you know, to a large degree. Um, but it is, Do you really find out who loves you. Uh, I, you know, your family loves you. Uh, that's unquestioned. You've yeah. You find out some other stuff, you know, you find out who's wants to hang around that, that spotlight or whatever it is. Yeah. You, you're going to learn some different things. You're going to learn about the size of the circle you have. Keep your inner circle and make sure it's inner. 
you know, don't let it grow too big because people want to jump in, jump into that uh, for any reason, but keep your head up, you know, things, this too shall pass, but, you know, stay, motivate yourself to find routine. Um, I'd say find your routine as fast as possible. And whether that's getting into a job or not, I'd just say that makes it a lot easier because if you're going to work, you're filling several hours a day, but find, find that routine, something to hang your hat on a hobby, whatever it is, uh, and go do it a hundred percent. Well, Matt, I've got to uh, brag about Sam for a sec before we leave. For six years, I was, I was blessed to be able to oversee the Seacrest Studio at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. And it's a, a partnership between the Ryan Seacrest Foundation and the hospital that provides an in-hospital TV and radio station. And we'd have the Reds come from really the time that the studio opened. And Sam, I think you came in two different seasons, and you called yourself one off-season Santa Claus. <laughs> Santa Claus came in with a whole like you literally looked like you had a sleigh with you man you had all this Reds gear and stuff for the kids and just Sam I just want to say thank you for using your platform as a ball player because those kids will never forget that and they had no idea they were meeting a ball player that day much less getting Reds gear and just having that experience and it was great for them to have while they were in the hospital a positive experience that they could take with them hopefully when they heal and get better. So I just want to brag about you and say thank you so much. <laughs> Man, you know, I don't, for Damn. I don't forget that stuff either, dude. Gosh, we had a great time. <laughs> it was awesome. You're a good man, oh, Sam. Here. <laughs> yep. I appreciate it, fellas. Dang, man. <laughs> what, is this, what, what is this, Dr. Phil? Leave me alone, dude. <laughs> you got me over here running my mouth. I probably lost my voice for the show tonight. That's all right. People are tired of hearing me talk anyway. Uh, well, Sam, what I you can do, what you can do is put on some, put on some, uh, some hot tea, maybe on the kettle. <laughs> Just nurse that. Those, I'm, a those, hot those, I'm a hot mess. I already got that going on, man. Nurse <laughs> those golden pipes a little bit yeah. and uh, get them ready to tell us about pitching in the Cincinnati Reds. But, uh, all right, so, man. I appreciate it, guys. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, Good stuff. I, we can talk baseball over a beer anytime. Our thanks to Sam LeCure, pitched part of six seasons in the major leagues with the Cincinnati Reds. And, Matt, what a honest conversation he has since the day he got called up to Great American Ballpark, and I had the privilege of covering him, has been honest, straight up, no BS, this is what I think. And you can either like it, not like it, agree with it, disagree with it, and that's what I'm going to think. Well, he wears his heart on his sleeve, right? And, you know, I, I appreciate ball players who are willing to be honest and, you know, especially talking about retirement and what that looks like and, you know, having the having the game a little bit ripped out from under under your feet and, you know, and then, you know, everything he does in the community around that. I could literally talk baseball with that guy all day, every day, and it would make me happy. It's an unbelievable game now. You have either home runs or strikeouts. You have guys who can't bunt. You have guys who won't run. And I was thinking to myself, is that easier or harder on the pitcher? Because yeah. the hitter is going to hit it either a mile or not at all. But you really don't have to worry about fielding a bunt. Yep. You don't have to worry about a lot of motion of any kind on the base paths containing that. It's, there's benefits and drawbacks. But you know what? Guys like Sam LeCure, I have so much respect for because the, I don't believe that guys like him are God's gift to baseball from the time they're born. And he alluded to it. Like, I 
got guys out with my mind. I sharpened my mind. I located, I prepared, I got ready. I worked as hard as I possibly could. And that's how I competed. And I think you can look at an example of, of Sam LaCure in any walk of life. If you're willing to pursue your dreams with all your heart and work as hard as you possibly can to get there, I think good things are going to happen. Yeah. It, it goes back to throwing a baseball into a mattress when he was a kid. Right. And I, I, I still maintain the the best players are not always the ones who make it to the big leagues. It's some combination of God-given ability and whoever's willing to outwork the, the guy standing next to you, right? And I think well, as he touched on it, Homer Bailey had his turn in the rotation. So Sam was at AAA, Homer Bailey was at the big club, Homer got hurt, and it just turned out the timing was such that Sam had a great outing and yeah. was going to take Homer's turn in the rotation. Yeah, and to be fair, some of it's a little bit of luck, right, of just getting there and getting your opportunity. And, you know, when we talked last week to Jeff Blake, that's what he talked about, right, was was taking advantage of whatever opportunity was given to you. And sounds to me like Sam and his confidence uh, already halfway to Cincinnati from Louisville, assuming he's going to get the call, you know, that also means he was ready to roll when he uh, stepped into that clubhouse for the first time and saw that liqueur on the back of his jersey, right? Yeah, and I think being able to play – for anyone who wants to experience big time college baseball, it's a thrill. Yeah. Seeing you know, high quality teams, whether it's at the University of Texas, the University of Michigan, Vanderbilt, Arizona, UCLA, high quality college baseball is the equivalent of high A minor league baseball. Yeah, and, and going it to Omaha is better in some in some cases, right? And going to Omaha where just the whole city, the region is awash in that kind of spirited competition and not to mention the way the fans travel from all around the country to make Omaha kind of their their home away from home for a couple of weeks or at least what they hope is a couple of weeks while their favorite team goes for the for the trophy so that's right I thought Sam Lequeur was awesome yeah thanks so much Sam for for doing it we can't wait to have you back on maybe next season this has been the victory away from the venue podcast along with Matt Swinney I'm Zach Wells we'll see you next time